Okay, well, welcome to the podcast Lightning Rounds Derek Service. I don't know how many questions there are, but it's going to be questions and answer. Derek, you ready? I'm ready. Lightning round, begin. Why start doing podcast interviews again? I enjoy the questions and I enjoy the challenge of coming up with new answers every time. Why say yes to my podcast invite when you have to turn down four other people on the same day? Because I care about you, Brian. We have been emailing since 2016 and I've been really excited to see your path. Why not talk about the coronavirus or businesses on podcast interview? Because I just have nothing new to say about those things. I feel like everybody else is focused on the virus and on business and I have nothing to add. On your blog post, civis.org slash laws, the woman I was madly in love with married the man she would always complain to me about. So did you got divorced twice? What's the story behind this? And what did you learn from it? Um, I've been married twice, but neither one was a decision to spend our lives together. Both were actually just a necessary document we needed to let us travel over international borders. Anything that we should prep before marriage? Prenups? <laughs> uh, you really don't know a person until you've seen them lose their luggage. So go on adventures together, but also have monotony together. Um, what do you like about Models by Mark Manson? And where is it lacking to a fulfilling relationship? <laughs> the book Models by Mark Manson is the wisest, most philosophical book for men about women I've ever found. It's lacking nothing. It's great. Go read it. How does a programmer, aka Derek Sivers, create a system to dating? I have no system for that. <laughs> I think with all of us, we have places in our life that are in order and places that aren't. So no, I have no order or system for dating. Sorry. How much should you trust your feelings when you pick your wife or a life partner? Feelings change over time. So don't trust feelings, trust time. Don't pick until you've spent time so that you can see your feelings change over time. What are three interesting things you learned about sex? <laughs> Everyone's approach is different. Uh, you have to communicate and some people click physically, even if they don't emotionally or intellectually. How do you become a resident in Singapore? Do you have to give up your US citizenship? And if not, like how? Singapore citizenship? I heard that you need to give up residency. Two things get confused, residency and citizenship. So residency is the right to live somewhere. Citizenship is the passport. So, um, I became a resident through the financial investor scheme back in 2010. It was a little different then. And then after living in Singapore for a few years, I applied for Singapore citizenship. And yes, if you get Singapore citizenship, then you have to give up your other citizenships. But my application for Singapore citizenship is still pending. I don't know what's up. It's been pending for a year and a half. So I'll worry about that if it happens. What surprised you about Singapore after you lived here? How many Singaporeans told me that they didn't follow their dream, that they wanted to be a musician or an artist or a painter, but instead they did what their family told them to. Mm. And at first, when I moved there, I came there with my very 
California American individualism. And I thought, no, that's wrong. That's horribly wrong. You need to follow your heart and do whatever you want. But it, after a while, I really got to understand that mindset better and understand it's just another way of looking at it. It's not right or wrong. Or I just got, I should under, I guess I understood that it's, it was also an, an equally right way of looking at things. But that was my biggest surprise when I first arrived. Tell me more about the Singapore government. What do you think the role of the Singapore government is different in Singapore than the rest of the world? I think the main difference is that in the rest of the world, when people say bureaucracy, they mean it as a bad thing. But the Singapore government is so well run that bureaucracy is actually a good thing. Uh, I think learning how the government is run is a little bit like looking under the hood of a Ferrari. It's like, it's a really impressive machine. I've talked with consultants from around the world that you know, they, they come from places like New Zealand or Finland that we also admire. And I've heard them all say that when they did consulting in Singapore for the Singapore government, that they've never been so impressed. And I kind of felt the same way moving there. So you say that Singapore was founded on ideals of the age of enlightenment. So why do you say that about Singapore? And, you're just, and why is also Singapore influenced by Confucianism? The Age of Enlightenment quote was something I actually just got from the Discovery Channel uh, documentary about Singapore. So that's not my own opinion. I was just echoing what I heard. And I really don't know anything hardly about Confucianism. But the thing that I said earlier about people doing what's best for their family or even their country instead of only following their own individual preference. I think that of that as relative to the culture I grew up in in California as being kind of uh, the Confucianism influence. Who do you think are the real government system designers in Singapore? I have no idea. <laughs> as amazing as it is, it's also very uh, opaque. How's mentoring in EDB, Spring and Ace? What do you do as a mentor? And uh, you know what is the role of a mentor over there? Well, it was 10 years ago, so I'm, I'm sure it's changed since then. But at the time, I just helped judge a couple like startup competitions. and But mo more than anything, I just met with lots and lots and lots of young entrepreneurs, sometimes even, you know, high school teenagers, but um, like through these programs that were encouraging entrepreneurship, uh, people that wanted to start a business, and I would help give them advice or feedback on their thoughts. That's all. What are the three most interesting or memorable person you've met in Singapore? Men Wang Wong, formerly oh. of JFDI. Pete Kellogg, formerly of, uh, his company was called Movie. And Lucien Teo, who, when I met him, he was working inside the government. And now, yeah. uh, last I heard, he was working inside Google. Uh, helping keep the internet safe for kids. How do you disagree well? And if you could define that. And so that you make a person see that their own bias without them being defensive. And when you're asked a loaded question, how do you un answer them? I'm always happy to disagree with the question. I think that's a really useful technique to disagree with someone's question instead of feeling you have to answer it. Like, so if somebody says, for example, uh, how can we get over our fears? I'll say, no, no, you shouldn't get over your fears. 
you should get under them, maybe, but don't get over them. So I think it's really healthy to remember that you always have the option to disagree with the question instead of answering it. Why do you think that Seth told you to, if you care, sell your company? And looking back, would you have said the same to yourself then? Okay, so what you're asking about is when Seth Godin in 2007, when I was thinking of selling CD Baby and the idea was radically uh, shocking to me, I had never, ever, ever considered it until that day. So I asked Seth Godin for his advice. And yeah, he said, if you care, sell. That's all he said. And what I think he meant is that I was doing a disservice to my clients by remaining the leader of a company that I didn't want to improve anymore. I was personally just feeling done with it. Um, so yes, I think it was very great, wise advice. And through your relationship with Seth Godin, what did you learn from him? And what do you think makes him special? Oh, Seth Godin is surprisingly wise. I already know he's wise, but he keeps impressing me with how wise he is. He's incredibly gracious, um, considerate, and encouraging. I think his special skill is he makes other people feel special. So in the, your blog post article, Sivers.org slash mistakes, how do you settle your $3.3 million mistake? I, I didn't settle it. <laughs> it was just a massive $3.3 million mistake that I had to pay for. Um, CD Baby was profitable at the time, so luckily I had $3.3 million, but it kind of, you know, it was all I had at the time. It was a huge mistake, and um, yeah, that's life. In your article, slash loss, will you be open to talk about these losses and your lessons that you learned from the losses? I think the, the lesson I learned is that the hardest times are when you learn the most. Um, so don't wish not to have them. Don't avoid mistakes. Uh, just make sure that you reflect on your mistakes and learn from them. Uh, I think one of the best ways to do this is to write in your journal every day so that your future self can look back to see how you really felt then, which is now. Um, because you'll find that anything that felt like a huge problem then, which is now, won't you will have completely forgotten about it 10 years from now, or maybe even one year from now. So I think it's amazing to keep a journal, especially during tough times, so that you can look back at it and realize that the things you were worried about were nothing to worry about. In the context of life, where do you think feelings, the word quote unquote, stands? And should we use it at all to make decision and how? I believe two conflicting things. So first, I believe that our emotions contain the wisdom of everything we've learned. Like everything you've ever taken in, everything you've ever read or learned or thought gets stored as feelings. So when you have a gut reaction to something, it actually is the wise culmination of everything you've ever learned. So you should trust it. Um, there's a great book about that called How We Decide by Jonah Lehrer. But on the other hand, I also believe number two, <laughs> that our emotions can be easily manipulated by ourselves and others. So we shouldn't trust our feelings. Um, perhaps 
You can even deliberately manipulate your feelings to match the facts. Uh, there's a great video about this called How to Hypnotize Simon Pegg by Darren Brown. Go search for that on YouTube. And it's a great succinct five minute example of how it can make more sense to make your feelings match the facts instead of trying to make the facts match your feelings. Do you feel that you know yourself? And what are the best tools, 80-20, to know yourself and why are they the best tools? And so then the question becomes, how does one learn about themselves? I know a lot about myself, but I think that the unconscious things are still unconscious by definition. Um, so I'm not aware of those things. Sometimes I cry at things that surprise me and I don't know why I'm upset or, about something. So that's still unconscious. But I think the best way to know yourself is to write privately, to journal, to diary, um, which means ask yourself questions and then question your answers. Don't just answer, don't just answer questions and just leave it at that. Look back at whatever you just answered and try doubting it. Say, well, what if that's not true? You know, here's what I want to do with my life. And you write it down and then you can look at it and say, well, what if that's not true? <laughs> what if that's not what I really want? So um, I think so. But most importantly, instead of just observing your words, observe your behavior, use your journal to record your behavior so that you can look back to see what you actually do, not just what you say. Ultimately, what you say doesn't matter as much as what you do. Well, how do you define personal value? And how do you find yours, which is learn and create? So if that's the case, then is learning a one or is it uh, a need? And then also, well, why create? I, I define the difference between want and need pretty harshly. Uh, need to me is basically, you know, you, you need to uh, stay alive. <laughs> Everything else is kind of a want. But I think your values change depending on the situation. So if at some point in your life you're lacking money, well, then money suddenly becomes your top value. I need to make money. But then if your health goes bad, suddenly you don't care about money as much. Like health is now your main value being healthy. Um, so I think it's interesting to note among those changes, which values seem to always be there for you, no matter what happens in life. Like, um, yes, for me, it's learning and creating, as you saw on my site. But for somebody else, it might be charitable, charitable giving or um, taking care of others or spirituality or money, whatever it may be. Just notice which things are always there for you, no matter what happens in life. But understand that the rest of your values are ever-changing. And uh, don't be afraid to, to embrace that change. That even though if you've loudly told somebody last year that this is your top value and suddenly life changes, then you can just admit, like, okay, my values have changed because the situation has changed. So what is your monthly burn rate that you set for yourself? Um, and how do you know that that is enough for you to be truly ever satisfied with, with life and that you don't need to work for money anymore? I think the only way to know, I mean, for myself, 
I I don't keep a a journal budget anymore, partially because I move around too much and there are expenses in moving that are gone six months later and then returned six months later when I move again. But I think you have to experiment to find out um, that you have to try living well below your means to know if you can. Um, it makes you face what's really important to you. There might be a lot of optional things we have that we don't really need. I actually feel sad whenever I see some multimillionaire's disgusting giant mansion. I think there was just something last week on like Drake, you know, the uh, singer from Toronto. Somebody posted like a picture, a tour of the inside of his mansion. I just, it made me sad. All this unnecessary stuff. It seems like somebody who is getting less and less aware of what's important and what's not. Um, so for me, like for one little example, I'm personally happy eating on $5 a day. I'm just not that into food. But for somebody else, that would make life not worth living for them. So, but on the other hand, I like to have a nice computer because I just type all day long. Whereas somebody else, they probably don't care about a computer. If they have a cheap Android phone, that's fine for them. But it's really important that they eat nice meals. You know, you just have to know your own personal value system, but definitely challenge yourself to see how little you can live on because it gives you an incredible sense of security to know that you can live on very little and know what's truly important. Well, why do you think that people ask the question, what is the purpose of life? <laughs> I think they're just annoyed at the uncertainty of it all. Uh, they want more certainty in their life. Um, also, everybody always wants to know what they should be doing. So why do you want to think slowly or to be unreactive in interviews? So is this the same when you are in conversations with your friends or were you like that since young? If not, what made you decide to change your mind? I think it's different when I know I'm being recorded <laughs> um, because then I know that it's archived forever. But also when I do things in public, I'm very aware of the microphone. Like if I'm doing in, if I'm doing something in public, I'm doing it for the public. I'm very aware of my 200,000 followers. So if I say something into the microphone, that means I believe that it's worth their time to stop and listen. And I think that's why I don't post nonsense or lightly share random things. Um, and so that's why I found it useful to take my time to, to think slowly instead of thinking I have to fill up space and speak nonsense. And when did that change for you uh, for this public thing? Well, it just changes when I'm public versus not public. So in, yeah, in private, I don't have that same filter. Good friends and I will just sit around and bat ideas back and forth. But, you know, you got to understand, I, for 15 years of my life, I made my living on stage. I've performed on stage over a thousand times. And I think it's just kind of, um, you know, I learned that it's like, okay, I'm on stage now. And now I think even with social media, whatever, I still, I feel that feeling of like, okay, now I'm, the microphone is on, I'm on stage, say something important. Why do you choose to take on the job of replying emails? Was it 550 emails a day, you know? And 
do you actually enjoy it? Like, what do you enjoy about it? I enjoy the connection. And by the way, to be fair, it isn't usually 550 a day. It's usually more like 30 a day. But yeah, there was a, I sent out something to everybody on my list and started getting 500 a day. And so, yeah, for a couple of weeks, it was all I did. And it was 500 a day. But more than anything, it's a huge sense of security for me. Knowing so many people around the world is a really great feeling. Um, it's really secure to know people all around the world. But also, it's really interesting to know people from different places or careers, right? Like, uh, like a guy emails me and he's a professional athlete in Uruguay. I'm like, wow, I know an athlete in Uruguay now. Somebody else emails me and he's a, a piano builder in Russia. I'm like, how cool. I know a guy that builds pianos in Russia. And then I get an email from this really cool dude in Singapore who's getting to know the misfits. Ah. <laughs> well, so why don't you do public speaking anymore? Is it because you don't like the format or do you think that the rich isn't enough for you? Um, I think even as a musician, I've always been more interested in recording and sharing my work with the whole world instead of just one room of people somewhere. Um, it might just be the introvert thing too. I just don't like being in crowds. That doesn't excite me. It drains me. But more than anything, it feels like if I'm going to spend a lot of time preparing, because I always do, I always spend a lot of time preparing. So then it feels like a bit of a waste to prepare so much for something that's going to just be to one room of people and that's it. I really want everything I do to be recorded and shared with the whole world. Well, why do you take on the label as an author and does it help you with your life? I just recently realized that being an author is the activity that I find most interesting right now. So by calling myself an author, it's kind of like doubling down on that thing. Whereas before I said, I'm an entrepreneur and a programmer and sometimes I share what I learn. I didn't think of myself as a writer and so therefore I wasn't spending much time doing it. But yeah, with a little, little soul searching, I asked myself, who are my heroes? And I realized, I think I really wanna be an author. And so that giving myself that title made me take it more seriously and therefore spend more time doing it and less time doing the other things. You seem to be very happy taking care of your son. Were you always this happy? Because in one of your uh, articles, um, you seem to say that it is you being actually selfish. Or did you know that it was actually you were being selfish all along? Or was it true reflection? And why do you think parenting is being selfish ultimately? Why take on that view? <laughs> you know what? This might be one of those things that if I said that in the past, uh, I disagree with it now. <laughs> so first, I was never planning on being a dad. No, that wasn't one of the things that I set out to do. It was a nice surprise. Um, but I don't think I would say parenting is selfish. Quite the opposite. Maybe what I meant is that it's also good for me. The things that I've learned about being a good dad, about just being completely present for him, like completely shutting off my devices and tucking away the phone whenever I'm playing with him. So it's like, there is no phone. It's just me and him uh, giving him my full attention, entering his world, 
turning him on to new things, showing him places and um, cultural inputs, that all of these things I'm doing for him also really benefit me. So that's what I meant. If if I said it was selfish, I'm sorry, I take it back. But but yes, the things I do for him also benefit me. What is the three biggest illusion that's preventing people to be happy? Uh, what is happiness to you? Can you describe that feeling? Um, I think happiness to me is the default, my default state when I'm not letting myself get sucked into worrying about problems. It just happiness, I think, for all of us is the default. So uh, the three biggest illusions, uh, let's say, biggest illusion number one, you can't help the way you feel. That's not true. You can. Um, illusion number two, that you should react to what's going on right now. Uh, you don't have to react. And uh, illusion number three, if you add something to your life, it will make you happier. Um, I think more people would be happier if they do more subtraction, subtract negative things from their life instead of trying to add more. What, are, what were the three things you unlearned in 2019? Three things I unlearned. Um, I thought that I knew what I wanted for my future. Uh, and I had to unlearn that and realize that you can only find out what you want by trying. You can't just sit in your bedroom and think in theory, this is what I want. Um, you have to try it to find out. Uh, for me personally, I, uh, number two, I thought that I wanted to make music. So I got my instruments here and I thought I wanted to make music again because for 15 years of my life, I was a full-time musician and I, I had to unlearn that thing that felt like a true fact, because although my words said I wanted to do music every day, my actions clearly disagreed with that. I just wasn't doing it. So I uh, officially gave up and gave away my instruments. And that was uh, very liberating. I felt very unconflicted. Um, Number three, I thought that having my books translated into many languages would be fun, but it was not. <laughs> the big question, how, do you, how does one be happy? What are the advice you give people? Um, hmm. Let go of goals. That's my only advice. Okay. <laughs> Since arriving at the UK, what surprised you? Absolutely nothing. It is just completely comfortable and completely unsurprising in every way. Maybe that's what's surprising about it is how unsurprising it is. England's just comfortable. I don't have much to say about it. Sorry. What email delivery software do you use? Your email seems to be landing in my inbox every single time. Really, that's amazing. Um, I just wrote my own. It's a little Ruby script that I wrote and put on my own server. And um, yeah, I just send emails out from my own server. Uh, for some things I use Amazon SES, which is a little kind of nerdy backend system they have for just using Simpty to, to deliver emails. But yeah, everything really happens on my server. Um, I don't ever wanna 
There's some things with programming that if you know just a tiny bit of programming, you can save thousands of dollars and not pay money to companies like MailChimp or Dropbox that are really doing nothing you can't do for yourself with just five minutes of learning. What um, context software do you use and how do you implement um, your context system? Um, I wrote my own because it's deeply integrated with everything else I do. It's the PostgreSQL database is really the core of uh, everything I do in my programming. But the only reason I wrote my own is because I have a whole system where it's like one central database that runs everything. So if you leave a comment on my site, it goes into my central database. If you buy my ebook on it through something else, if I have a different domain, like I have a, a website called Music Thoughts with a collection of thoughts about music. And if and if you submit a thought to Music Thought, well, then it all still comes into my central database. The big idea was um, that I just wanted to have one record of a person. So, you know, here's uh, Sarah in Sweden, and I want her to exist just one place in my database. So if Sarah moves to Norway, then it just gets changed in one place. And, you know, for email address changes, it's changed in one place. So I wrote my own because I wanted to integrate it with everything else I'm doing. But um, on my site, I have recommendations. I'm constantly on the lookout for good contact management software. So I believe the URL is uh, if you go to sivers.org slash DBT, as in database tips, I think that's the URL where I wrote my article about my recommendations for uh, for you. How do you make night mode on your website? Oh, that's just one line of CSS. Somebody turned me onto that a month ago. Um, uh, it's at media prefers color scheme dark. You put the curly braces and whatever you put inside that means that the user then gets to decide. So on some phones and tablets now, you can just say, you can, the user decides, I want things to go dark when my room is dark or always. And so that way you let the user decide whether your site is light or dark. So the default is still the white background with black text I've always had. But if somebody on their device flips it into dark mode, my site turns black with white text. But yeah, that's a single line of CSS. That's very easy. What is, the, what is your top three most useful ideas, products or software that's in your life currently? Um, currently, April 2020, the most useful idea is to expect the worst and make your peace with it. Uh, right now, the most useful product for me is my weight rack in my garage. I've lived in a little apartment for many years, and I'm so thankful to have a garage with a weight rack in it right now so I can exercise during lockdown. And software is always, for me, the PostgreSQL database. But that's my nerdy programming thing. That's not like something you can install for five bucks. It's, it's something you learn. What is the idea behind how to live book that you're writing right now? How are you writing it day to day? And why do you decide to put them into a book, not a bunch of articles? Okay, it's because there is a brilliant book called Sum, S-U-M, by David Eagleman, uh, that answers the question, what happens when you die? And he answers it 40 different ways in 40 different chapters, 
and each chapter deliberately conflicts with the previous chapters. Um, it's answering the question 40 different ways with 40 different opinions. So I thought it would be a blast to write a book called How to Live in that exact same format. So I've got 27 different conflicting chapters um, answering that question of how you should live. So each chapter is completely convinced that it has the right answer on how you should live. And each chapter completely disagrees with all of the others. Uh, then I was surprised and thrilled actually to find one grand conclusion, but you'll have to find that secret when the book is ready. How do you get a .org domain? <laughs> you just register it wherever you, wherever domains can be registered. Any place that does a .com can do a .org. Um, I also own Sivers.com and Sivers.net, and I have forever. But .org has a historical use for nonprofit organizations. So I chose .org for my personal site because I wanted to make it clear that this isn't a business. I don't do any, I don't track analytics. There is no advertising. I make no money off of this. This is just my personal site. So that's why I did .org. But yeah, anybody can get a .org wherever domains are sold.